Before we begin the episode, here's a word from this week's sponsors of the show. I ask you, what's better in baking hot weather, well, when we get it that is, than enjoying a beer? Well, how about enjoying a crate of free beer? The true crime enthusiasts' friends at Beer 52 have kindly sponsored the show this week and are offering listeners the great opportunity of a free crate of a selection of beers by simply heading over to www.beer52.com that's beer52.com forward slash true crime all in one word and simply covering the £4.95 postage costs. Now if that's not ace enough, As an added bonus, if you sign up within the next two weeks, they'll even throw in two extra beers, making a total of 10. Sounds good? Well, let me tell you some more about Beer 52. Beer 52 are pioneers that seek out the best and most interesting beers that everyone can enjoy from the greatest small batch breweries across the globe. With eight craft beers delivered to members each month from a variation of themes and countries worldwide, It's not surprising that they've become the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Past themes have included selections of beers ranging from German to Korean via such themes as Californian, Scandinavian, even South African beers. Yet as an independent UK company, Beer 52 haven't forgotten their roots and are just as passionate about the burgeoning UK craft beer scene. So you're getting a different themed box of beers each month and there really is a right assortment out there. You'd be surprised how much. But what's great also is that you can choose exactly what you get in your crate. So if you don't like dark beers, that's fine. You don't have to have them. If you only like dark beers, boom, that's what you get. It's brilliant. Beer 52 let you tailor the box to your own preference and you also get to rate and review all of the beers that you've collected and sampled on their website. You also get a free snack in each crate as well, because beer and snacks do go together, don't they? And you even get yourself a copy of the award-winning Ferment magazine, which explains all about that month's themes and the individual beers that are in your crate. And if you should decide after your free crate the Beer 52 isn't really for you, then no worries, you can leave at any time and Beer 52 won't hold you to ransom. Now they were kind enough to send me a box of this month's European selection beers to try and I've got to say I was very impressed with it as a theme that really caters for all. I like to try a different selection myself and from the amber ale of O Vienna to the intriguing Blackberry Milkshake IPA called Paradise, there's something in each crate for everyone. Check out the show's Instagram page to see what I was very kindly sent. And that's aside from you being able to tailor each box to your own preference as you go through and try some of the wild and wonderful beers from across the globe. These sure are ones that you won't find in your standard supermarket. So if you're already thirsty there and you fancy becoming a beer pioneer, just head over to www.beer52.com forward slash true crime. That's beer52.com forward slash true crime and sign up now. Your first free box containing some of the best European themed beers will be sent out to you the very next day with your beers, ferment magazine, even a snack to have with your crate. Plus remember, if you sign up within the next two weeks as well, you'll get two extra, making 10 unmissable unique beers in your crate instead of eight, all for just £4.95 postage costs. What are you waiting for? What an unmissable deal that is. The link's within the show notes this week, or once again, that's www.beer52.com forward slash true crime 
beer52.com forward slash true crime. Head over there and sign up now for your first crate free. Hello folks, warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the one-man North Wales spare room-based show that seeks out and recounts the unfamiliar and obscure cases, both solved and unsolved ones, that the UK and Ireland have on their books. I'm Paul, the creator, host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, where I thank you guys as ever for joining me and I trust that this episode finds that you're all good and well. Welcomes to the new enthusiasts who are listening in this week, and a welcome back to you established lot who've been joining me here for a while now. I know I say it quite often, but it's ace of you and it does mean the world. Cheers also go out firstly this week for the feedback and comments that I've received concerning the show's previous episode, The Wolfman of London. What an absolutely crazy tale that was, wasn't it, eh? I gather that the tale of Lupo and his horrific crimes was found an interesting one by you all though, which is fantastic. Thanks very much, guys. And I have to say also that I've had a few people get back to me about the line in the episode, like Fred West's car boot sale, to show their appreciation for it. Well, I just call things as I see them, and that's exactly how I am in my everyday speeches all, so it felt very apt to say that. Secondly, it's a big thanks to both my returning and newest Patreon supporters of the show, that's namely Olivia, Sandra McGovern, Heather Kidd, Sam, Mark Dunstan, Jane Moriarty and Claire Nudson Latter. Very much appreciated of you guys, thank you so much and I hope that you've enjoyed the bonus episodes you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show with bonus episode number 20 coming very very soon. Now you guys can join these kind folks also for some extra enthusiasts by becoming a supporter either by using the link in the episode show notes or by seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon website and it should appear now with my nice new shiny show logo that's courtesy of my very good friend Jess Carter at Outlines, who isn't just a great and very missed show host, I must say. She's very talented in other areas, is Jess as well. Now, each series of the show so far, I've traditionally put out in each an episode that focuses upon some of the unsolved cases from a particular area of the UK. In the past, we've covered the West Midlands, Avon and Somerset, Gloucestershire, and for the turn of this series, it's Lincolnshire over to the east of the country. Now, we've been to Lincolnshire before on the podcast, covering a heinous pair of axe murders in the imaginatively titled Lincoln Axe Murders episode last series. Plus, my first ever bonus Patreon episode is also set there, and again, imaginatively titled Murder in Lincoln. Sometimes I wonder how I've ever got this far, I really do, with imagination like that. 
So for this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've decided to head back there and I'm focusing on a pair of cases from the town of Grantham. The two that I've chosen this week are horrific, tragic and unsolved crimes that perhaps won't be familiar ones, but ones that I want to stay in people's minds following the episode because the people involved deserve to be remembered. As we've said many times before here on the show, no one's tale should be more important than another's. It was originally intended to be three Lincolnshire cases, but the third case that I had in mind I've decided will instead form this month's bonus Patreon episode in order to cover the other two in more depth. Now as ever when unsolved crimes are covered here on the show, what I do is recount what's known about the case and then work back through it, offering my own speculations and theory about what we know. I never claim to be right or spot on in what I say, but nor do I state absolute gobbledygook either, at least not intentionally anyway. That's one of my favourite ever words, that is gobbledygook. Love it. The episode this week does contain descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion as always whilst listening, folks. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we head back to 1994 to look at two cases that make up an episode I've simply entitled The Grantham Stranglings. First and foremost, let's bust out some of the stats I found about where we're on about. A largely agricultural area on the east of the UK, Lincolnshire is the second largest of England's ceremonial counties behind North Yorkshire. Lincoln Castle still holds one of only four surviving copies of the Magna Carta. In 1979, the first barcode in the UK was ever scanned there, on a packet of tea bags no less. And famous persons hailing from the county include Mr Gravity himself, Isaac Newton, former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Edith Smith, the first policewoman to be granted powers of arrest back in the mid-years of the First World War. Plus he's not famous, but a point to note anyway, my biological dad lives there, and the least said about him, the better really. A predominant town in the South Kesteven district of Lincolnshire is the town of Grantham, and it's Grantham that's our focus of the episode. It's got the distinction of being the birthplace of both the first diesel engine and the first tractor at the end of the 19th century, Isaac Newton went to school there, and it wasn't far away from here that he watched his apple drop, which I always think sounds like a euphemism, but shouldn't do really. And notable people to hail from there included noted British spiritualist and medium slash charlatan Doris Stokes, first female Prime Minister Margaret Marmite Thatcher, because you either think she's a wonder or a devil, and infamous killer nurse, the angel of death, Beverly Allett, who you never know, we may just meet on the show sometime in the future. It was also home for many years to a young woman named Sharon Harper, who lived in a ground floor flat on Grantham Sycamore Court. By 1994, life was good for 21-year-old Sharon, with a nice home, a fiancé, plenty of friends, and a newborn daughter, Sarah, that her world revolved around, and that she was excited to raise and watch grow into a happy child and onto a young woman. Instead, Sharon was sadly never to get that. At just five months old, Sarah was left to be raised by Sharon's parents, Jennifer and Michael Harper, and was never to know her mother, because on Saturday, July the 2nd, 1994, Sharon Harper was beaten, strangled, 
and left to die in a car park only a short distance from her home. Sharon had met her fiancé, Michael Duller, about two years before, where they'd begun a relationship, and almost a year later, Sharon had fallen pregnant with her daughter, Sarah Louise. The couple were happy, with no reported troubles or trust issues, and both worked hard to provide a decent future for their baby daughter. Michael was a shift manager who worked long hours throughout the night, and so the primary carer for Sarah was Sharon, while she herself worked three nights a week as bar staff at the former Market Cross pub on Grantham's Westgate. On the night she was required to work, and if Michael himself was working nights, care of Sarah would fall to a childminder friend of Sharon's named Emma, who lived nearby. Sharon would drop her baby daughter off with Emma before work and would collect her on the way home after she'd finished. The night of Friday the 1st of July 1994 was one such night. Michael had headed off to work and as Emma was working the pub's busy Friday night, early that evening she gathered Sarah up and took her and the Mary Poppins bag that go with all newborns around to Emma's. Here she stayed talking for a few minutes where she confirmed she would collect Sarah at the usual time before heading on foot the short distance along the A607 Harlaxton Road to Westgate where the Market Tavern pub was. That Friday was a normal busy Friday night with live entertainment on at the pub and despite being busy and rushed Sharon was said to have been a usual cheery self. There certainly seemed to be nothing bothering her at all and she'd even reportedly planned to have a night out around Grantham with some friends and fellow bar staff that coming Sunday night. Back in 1994, the licensing laws were not as they are today and the bell had rung for last orders at the pub just at 11pm where shortly after 11.40pm the once busy pub was reveler free and had emptied. After clearing and straightening up, it was the licensee Mark Foster's tradition for the staff to stay behind for a drink before leaving for the night, and so they did this, Sharon included. After chatting for a few minutes, following her drink, Sharon said goodnight to her friends, and as she would usually do, set off on foot to walk the short distance of a mile and a half to Emma's house to collect baby Sarah before heading home. She was seen by staff leaving the pub and passing the outside windows just shortly after midnight. By about 20 past 12, Emma and her boyfriend had expected Sharon to have arrived at the flat to collect Sarah, who was of course fast asleep, but that came and went with no sign of her. As the minutes ticked by and turned into an hour with still no Sharon, and with no answer after telephoning her house, somewhat vexed at her friend, Emma and her boyfriend went to bed themselves and left Sarah sleeping in a cot. Just before 8am the following morning, Sharon's boyfriend Michael arrived at the flat after finishing work, where he'd arranged to take Sharon and Sarah out shopping for the day, but as he entered the flat and called out for Sharon, there was no answer. There was no sign of Sarah either, and Michael at first thought that she must have forgotten their arrangement and headed out early herself. That was until the telephone rang shortly afterwards and it was Emma, wondering if Sharon was there and why she hadn't collected Sarah the night before. When Michael heard this, that was when the unease started. Several subsequent telephone calls around Sharon's friends and relatives all drew a blank, and with real panic now set in, 
Michael eventually reported Sharon as missing to police later that Saturday morning. His report was taken seriously and an earnest search began for the young mother. It had been 12 hours since she'd last been seen leaving the Market Cross pub and as a focal point, staff at the Market Cross were all spoken to but could tell police nothing. It was just firmly established that Sharon had been a usual self and in good spirits when she'd left the pub on foot to walk the mile and a half trip home via Emma's. Now Sharon's usual route home it was established would have seen her heading south off Westgate continuing over the roundabout onto the A607 Harlaxton Road for a distance before then turning right off here into Trent Road. Once here she would have followed Trent Road west for a considerable route before turning into Swingbridge Road just off which was her home in Sycamore Court. The entire route, just a mile and a half, is busy urban one and in parts largely populated, although there are equally open areas of parkland and industrial units scattered off each. As these are busy main roads, and the layout of them will not likely have changed in the 25 years that have now passed, it was along these busy main roads that a search for any traces of what may have happened to Sharon began, as despite a check of hospitals drawing a blank, it was feared that perhaps she'd been hit by a car whilst walking home and was lying injured but out of sight somewhere on the route. It wasn't police who discovered Sharon though and it wasn't on what was established was a usual route home. The following day, Sunday the 3rd of July, children playing near the Shepherd Construction car park in Grantham's Earlsfield Lane, just half a mile from Sycamore Court, went to investigate a bundle that they'd noticed amongst the shrubs and greenery of an oriental shrubbery in the car park and was soon to recoil in horror and run to raise the alarm. Dumped unceremoniously, having been beaten and strangled, was the lifeless body of Sharon Harper. She'd never made it to collect Sarah that night, but had instead met her killer. The resulting investigation was led by Detective Superintendent Stuart Clifton of Lincolnshire Police, who organised and ensured that the routine and recognised initial actions of all murder inquiries got underway. Sharon's friends and family were all questioned and eliminated, her fiancé Michael was questioned and eliminated as a suspect in the inquiry, extensive house-to-house -house inquiries in the area were undertaken, and an intense fingertip search of the area to try and find items determined missing from Sharon's person got underway and all resulted in dead ends. By just two months into the inquiry, police had exhausted every theory and possible lead that they'd had and they'd only had a few potential lines resulting from their exhaustive inquiries anyway. They had absolutely nothing to go on and barring Sharon's devastated family, who were by this time now raising Sarah Louise, and her former fiancé Michael, even local interest in the crime had waned. So now was the time for a crime watch reconstruction. When is it ever not, eh? Sharon's tragic case appeared in a reconstruction in the September 1994 edition of Crime Watch UK. Don't worry enthusiasts, I'll slate the BBC later on in the episode, where the final known movements of her were replayed to the watching public. This included her visiting Emma's, working in the pub that Friday evening, and leaving to walk home. 
but the appeal also included details of other points of interests that police had discovered during the course of the investigation. During their investigation, police had received a report from a friend of Sharon's who had a memorable encounter with her about a month before she was murdered. This witness had been walking through Grantham Town Centre and had walked up a passageway bordering Morrison's supermarket where she had spotted Sharon on one of the passageway's corners talking what was described as intently to a long-haired man aged in his early to mid-thirties wearing jeans, jumper and carrying a casual rucksack. Fifteen minutes later, when the witness had finished her shopping and headed back the same way, the couple were still there immersed in conversation. As Sharon's friend sat down to have a cigarette nearby, Sharon began to walk away from the man and towards her, but the man followed her. The friend said that Sharon then stopped to speak to her when she reached her, reportedly looking relieved, and the man subsequently walked away. When she'd asked Sharon who the man was, Sharon told her that it didn't matter and quickly but firmly changed the subject. The friend added also that after asking Sharon who the man was, she turned to watch the man walk away but said that for some reason Sharon firmly told her not to stay. Also during the Crime Watch appeal, police told of two anonymous calls that they'd received on the 4th of July 1994, the day after Sharon's body was discovered. The male caller had rung to say that around the same time as Sharon was expected to have collected Sarah from Emma's, He'd been driving south down Harlaxton Road when he'd seen Sharon arguing with a long-haired man in his mid-thirties outside Archway's garage, a service station midway along Harlaxton Road. Before he'd rung off, the caller had told police that he'd thought the man had possibly been wearing a white football shirt and possibly a Leeds United t-shirt. On the second call, the caller had told a similar story, but now added that he'd seen Sharon with the man previously so the caller had plainly known Sharon. He also now told how he'd slowed his car down to a stop to ask Sharon if she was alright. She'd said she was fine, and so the man drove off. Now whether these calls were made by the same man, or by two separate people, couldn't be determined, but the caller, or callers, gave no further details than these before ringing off. There are no reports of the estimated age of the caller, or any accent he may have had. There was another reported sighting of Sharon in the appeal, this time between 12.40am and 12.45am that Saturday morning, nearby to a public telephone box on Wharf Road near Westgate. The taxi driver who reported the sighting said that he saw Sharon there by the phone box arguing with a shoulder-length haired man wearing a white short-sleeved t-shirt and jeans. He added that it seemed at the time as though the man had been pulling Sharon away from the phone box and that Sharon seemed as though she'd been wanting to get into it. However, he didn't stop, and he'd only seen this as he was driving past. This was the last reported sighting of Sharon before her body was discovered on the Sunday morning. But despite the appeal, even Crime Watch couldn't crack the case, having a very disappointing response to the reconstruction. Shortly afterwards, the investigation wound down as all possible lines of inquiry had been exhausted. In the years since Sharon's murder, despite periodic reviews of the case and the reported arrests of five people over the years in connection with the crime, no charges have ever been brought against anyone and today 
Sharon's murder remains unsolved. So it's right about now when we cover unsolved cases such as Sharon's that I dust off my Colombo Mac, squint my eye, grab a cigar. No, I don't do any of that really. But what I do instead is look at what we know about the case, try to cast a logical eye over it and think out loud with my own theories. As always, I stress that they're just that, theories. I'm not murder she wrote as I've said many times. I don't claim this is exactly what happened, but nor do I think it's utter crap like, well, it's clearly aliens that have done it, isn't it, either. And I invite you guys to get in touch to offer your own theories, call me out for being a bellend, whatever you want. So what then do we know about the murder? The victim here was a 21-year-old mother of one, described by all who knew it as fun-loving and popular, who sometime shortly after midnight, whilst walking home in the early hours of Saturday 2nd of July 1994, was somewhere strangled, beaten and dumped in a car park half a mile from her home. Now the post-mortem reportedly found evidence of Sharon having had sexual activity before her death. I phrased that specifically like that for reasons I'll come on to shortly. And items were reportedly taken from a person, although it's not stated what these items were exactly. Jewellery, clothing, money, we don't know. Although there have been reportedly five arrests in the years since the crime, no one has ever been charged and the murder remains officially unsolved. And in a nutshell, that's about it. Sharon's is one of the frustrating cases where there's proper next to nothing to research about it. Absolutely scant few details available. And what there is only leaves gaps that raise frustrating questions. Still, cases such as Sharon's are the reason that I do episodes such as these. So I really shall try my best with what we've got to work with here. I'd like to think that the original investigation back in 1994 was as thorough as could possibly be, and therefore any immediate suspects such as Sharon's fiancé Michael, bar staff at the Market Cross pub, pretty much anyone who knew her, were all satisfactorily eliminated from the inquiry. You'd also hope that Sharon's life was scrutinised to see if anything from her past or her social circles raised its head as a potential important line of inquiry, for example, if she was involved in anything illegal or illicit, then or past? Was she involved in the drug scene? Any issues with ex-boyfriends or any secret lovers? People that she may have fallen out with? That kind of thing. Now, I'm in no way suggesting that this wasn't done in the initial stages of the inquiry back in 1994. If not, there's something drastically wrong there. So let's take it that nothing or no one jumped out as a potential that was found through this. I don't think this is an abduction. There were no reported sounds of screams heard at a time when there would be surely people still milling about in a busy area like Grantham. And if a vehicle had been used to abduct for the purposes of murder, then Sharon's body would have likely been dumped a much more considerable distance away from where she was abducted than half a mile. I believe that she knew a killer and I believe that the killer was from or knew the Grantham area well. Looking then at Sharon's final movements on the night that she died, we definitively know that she left the pub just after midnight to supposedly walk home the short distance of a mile and a half via Emma's to collect Sarah. She'd indicated earlier in the evening that she would collect a child as routine at the usual time. Now I looked on Google Maps at the route home that Sharon would supposedly have taken 
traced it from the site of the former Market Cross pub to Sycamore Court via Harlaxton Road and Trent Road, and it's a journey that would take on foot averaging between 15 to 30 minutes. It's not reported where Emma lived at the time, but logic suggests that it's somewhere nearby that this route would be the quickest to take to get there. Looking at the map though, there is an alternate route home for Sharon, about the same distance, even possibly shorter, that would have taken her off Harlaxton Road and down Earlsfield Lane. Earlsfield Lane is where her body was found the following day. Was Sharon possibly heading home first? There are, as mentioned, two sightings of a man and a woman arguing shortly after midnight in the vicinity of Harlaxton Road, which police considered both sightings to be of Sharon and a long-haired male dressed in a white t-shirt and jeans. Now, The first sighting is that described in the anonymous courts police reported during the Crime Watch appeal. Police had added that there were three possible motives for these calls, that they were deliberate hoaxes, that it was the killer trying to lay a false trail, or that they were a legitimate witness or witnesses. Now, of course, while each of these is possible as a motive for the calls, police considered the third possibility to be the most likely, and I would have to agree. Let's look at each. I know any investigation can get hoax callers or letter writers, because some people are just twisted like that, but if you were planning a hoax, surely you would have worked out all the false info that you were going to mislead police with first, not phone up again later anonymously to impart some further false detail and risk your voice being recorded for a second time. And wouldn't it be likely much more detailed for a deliberate hoax? I think the same if it was the killer deliberately trying to mislead police, wouldn't it be more detailed? Or wouldn't the fictional argument have taken place near where Sharon's body was found in Earlsfield Lane? And surely the killer wouldn't describe himself as the same physical description as the two other sightings we've mentioned that were separate and that he couldn't possibly have known about or risk getting his voice on tape twice? No, I believe that the anonymous caller was a genuine witness who knew Sharon and there could be several reasons for the two separate calls as well as for the anonymity. It must have been apparent as an argument for him to stop. Perhaps there was some arm waving or physicality. You can generally tell if you see people having an argument from their body language, can't you? He obviously recognised Sharon and claimed during the call that he'd seen her and the man together previously, suggesting that he either knew Sharon or at least knew of her, perhaps through a job at the Market Cross or perhaps for another reason that we shall touch upon shortly and was so concerned by what he saw that he slowed down to ask if she was okay. She reportedly had said she was fine when he stopped to ask, and at that point she must have felt that she was, because if the caller was genuine, this was Sharon's chance for rescue, and she didn't take it. Now in the caller's haste to report this sighting to police, he may have called initially to give this account, including a description of the man with Sharon that was supported by the taxi driver's sighting some 20 to 25 minutes later, and then thought after ringing off that it may have been important to express to police that he'd actually slowed down to a stop and asked Sharon if she was alright, and so called police again to impart this information. But again, it's the gaps in the information here that are frustrating, and I listed several points about this while I was researching the episode. I mean, how far apart were these anonymous calls, and how long was each? 
Were they recorded or traced to any location? And when the caller claimed that he'd spoken to Sharon, did she calmly tell him that she was alright? Was she upset or angry? Did he address her as Sharon or did he know her just by sight but not by name? These are all points that would help to know when looking at this alleged sighting. And the possible reason for the caller's anonymity? It could have been that he was on his way to or from somewhere other than where he was supposed to have been that evening, perhaps with a lover or having committed a petty crime, and by identifying himself he risked being exposed or prosecution or even shame. It may have been that he'd had unfavourable dealings with police before, shall we say, that had left him with a dislike and a distrust of them, or even for the reason that he just wanted his privacy respected and wanted to help but not to be too involved, there could be several reasons. Police also seem to consider that the sighting by the taxi driver of Sharon and a long-haired male in Wharf Road about 40 minutes after she left the Market Cross is an accurate sighting too, despite what must have been a fleeting glimpse as he was driving when he made the sighting. It was considered important enough to feature on the Crime Watch reconstruction after all, and it would be important not to deliberately mislead on such a stage, wouldn't it? So let's consider this is accurate also. We don't know how far along Wharf Road this sighting was, as the telephone boxes have long since gone from here, but if this was Sharon, it doesn't explain why she would head back here instead of towards home unless she was trying to telephone Emma to explain her delay and this was the location of the nearest telephone box. Remember, this is days before everyone had a mobile phone. Yet it would surely make more sense to head towards Emma's rather than head back on herself to call and report that she'd be late. Or if this sighting is accurate, perhaps she hadn't gone back on herself. Does that mean that Sharon had not got further than this in the 40 minutes since she left the pub? And so the anonymous caller sighting is bogus. See what I mean? Questions here or what, eh? So what then are the possible motives behind Sharon's murder? Now if you watch the Crime Watch appeal, which is available thanks to the mighty Red Card 74 and is of course within the episode show notes this week, see if you agree with me when I thought the police were being deliberately tight-lipped as to the possible motive. They mentioned certain items of Sharon's that were missing from her body, but neglect to say exactly what these items were, and seem to profess instead that theft wasn't really considered to be the motive here. They're equally hesitant to state their belief whether the motive was a sexual or a personal one either, or most tellingly, they make no mention in the appeal whatsoever of the fact that Sharon had had sex before her death. This, to me, is the crucial point. Separate reports do claim that the post-mortem revealed evidence that Sharon had engaged in sex before her death, yet there's no mention of this resulting from a sexual assault. I must stress, the scant reports about the case simply state that there is evidence of Sharon having had sex sometime before her death. It's never established exactly how long before, and nor are there any reports of any DNA profile being obtained as a result, so how it's established is not reported. But for it to be mentioned at all, this does suggest that it was with someone other than Michael, who could after all be ruled out through a simple DNA test, or even by confirmation or denial, so this leads to three other possibilities. 
Sharon was raped by a killer, and this is just very poor press reporting. Sharon had consensual sex with a lover before being murdered, or it's also been suggested that Sharon was possibly a sex worker and was killed by a client. Now, as the consensus among the limited information available concerning the case is that this sex was consensual, then I don't believe that she was raped. It would be clearly defined in the initial appeal and accounts about the murder if this was the case, I think. A look at her life found no evidence of her having a secret lover, and as Grantham certainly isn't Tokyo and Sharon was very well known, you have to think that if this was the case, at least someone would have known of the relationship or had an inkling about it that would have filtered back to police in the initial inquiry. It would surely have been considered and come to light. Plus, by all accounts, she was a happy new mum. She'd been in a loving relationship for a couple of years and was engaged to Michael. There's no suggestion that the couple were anything but happy, and all reports and accounts about Sharon suggest that this is something that would be totally out of character for her. Yet the possibility, of course, exists that she may have had a secret lover, and the person was a very well-kept secret. So if this is correct, then who was he? Was the well-kept secret lover the long-haired man Sharon was seen talking to about a month before her death? Out of the three sightings we've discussed in this episode, this one is certainly reliable. The witness knew Sharon, so we can count this as definite, and we have no reason to question her description of the man, although a speculation that Sharon appeared relieved when she made her way over to the witness, and that the conversation was intent, may not be accurate. A friend may just be reaching after the fact, perhaps tainted by grief, we don't know. Long-haired men do seem to be a recurring theme in the case though, and if he was a secret lover, it would explain Sharon's reluctance to explain who he was to her friend to not expose the affair. It would equally provide a good explanation for the man seen with Sharon shortly before she was killed, if indeed the sightings are genuine and accurate. She's followed on her way home by her lover, an argument developed en route which resulted in consensual, perhaps quick make-up or pacifying sex, and then the earlier argument reignited again on the walk home, perhaps down Earlsfield Lane, that ended in violence and murder. Of course, this must remain pure speculation. The same can be said for the suggestion that Sharon may have been a sex worker. Now, I must strongly stress there's no evidence to suggest that she was, although this theory was not discounted by police. In fact, the statement, Miss Harper had no convictions for prostitution, that appeared in the press later, is quite telling with the way it's worded, don't you think? So this possibility must have been explored. It is easy to think also that if she was, it would have been part of her life that she kept extremely secret, well-guarded and controlled, and one that the attractive young woman saw as an easy way to make money that was likely much needed with a newborn baby. So was she possibly involved in this? Now, I don't know the extent of Grantham's red light areas, but it's likely that a town of its size, with a population of 44,000 people, certainly has at least some part of one, and if it does exist, Sharon may have indeed been on the fringes of it. But this seems unlikely to me. By all accounts, she worked three nights a week at the Market Cross pub to earn her money. The rest of the time she would have been taking care of Sarah, 
when and where exactly would she have done this unnoticed? Possibly from her flat, although I think this unlikely if this was to remain unnoticed. It's perhaps too close to home, that literally. But let's say, hypothetically, that she was a part-time sex worker. Was she approached on her way home by a client and saw the opportunity to make some quick and easy money? Was she picked up in a car, for example, and taken to a nearby place for courting couples, say, a patch of waste ground that doubled as a car park nearby in Earlsfield Lane, that she agreed to because it was halfway home for her? I do believe Sharon was killed where she was found, so did she suggest there, because it was somewhere quiet nearby that she knew, and headed there with someone who'd picked her up? And did she go off with the wrong person, who just happened to have more than sex on his mind. Again, it all must remain pure speculation. There are so many gaps in the available information that we could do nothing but speculate. The sex worker angle, however, does give another possible reason for the anonymity of the male caller. Perhaps this is how he knew Sharon, and he didn't want this to become public knowledge. Going back to the long-haired man, it's of course impossible to say that he is Sharon's killer, even that this is the same man that was seen with Sharon a month before her death, but the descriptions are consistent throughout each sighting, so it's a long-haired male who's the main person of interest in the case, one who's never been identified or come forward despite descriptions from the three sightings portrayed on Crime Watch being amalgamated to form a widespread artist's impression which is reproduced on the show's Instagram page. Of course, this artist's impression is today now rendered moot due to the passage of time, but the man may have also taken drastic steps to alter his appearance immediately after the initial appeal, perhaps even immediately after the crime if he's involved, and so the artist's impression would all have been for nothing anyway. If this man isn't the killer, then he's an extremely crucial witness who was with Sharon perhaps just moments before she died and would need eliminating from the inquiry. But if he isn't, then why hasn't he ever come forward? He may of course have moved away, he may be out of the country, he may be in a hospital, he may even now be dead. Sharon's case has been linked over the years to several other unsolved killings up and down the country and across the area of the Midlands, and theories do abound that her killer is perhaps one of several who are already serving life sentences for other horrific crimes. Now the geography certainly fits, and there are certainly a couple of possible names that do spring to my mind, but those are tales for another time, and another couple that we shall meet here on The Enthusiast in the future. Yet with the massive gaps in information available concerning Sharon's murder, it's difficult to look at the psyche of her killer due to such little information. These gaps make this one of the most frustrating cases I've ever looked at since I began doing the show and due to these, so much of the account has to be surmising. We don't have a totally clear picture of Sharon's final movements, we don't have details of how or when exactly she was killed, or how she was exactly found, what items were taken from her body, which if we did, would all go some way to perhaps examining the psyche of Sharon's killer that little bit more. We also have two sightings that serve to muddy the waters more than anything, and no clear motive, be it theft, personal or sexual, it's pure speculation that remains. What also remains, though, is Sharon's daughter, Sarah. 
She's now 25 years old and a graphic designer and was raised as a daughter in Grantham by her maternal grandparents following her mother's murder, only learning of Sharon's tragic story several years later. For undisclosed reasons, she's now estranged from her biological father Michael, but remains hopeful that one day the killer of the mother that she very sadly never got to know is identified and faces justice for the crime. But she also has to cope with having no memories of her mum whatsoever. Nothing, I remember absolutely nothing of her, she told the Grantham Journal in an interview in 2015 when her mother's unsolved murder was covered in a feature. Sharon does remain in the remaining Harper family's thoughts, however, where in their Grantham front garden they planted a rose bush in her memory, like that near to the scene where she was discovered on Earlsfield Lane. And both Sharon and the late Michael Harper, who sadly passed away from stomach cancer in 2014, both attended Sarah's wedding in memory in July 2015, where both of their photographs were placed lovingly on a special table at the reception. Sarah told the Grantham Journal, It would have been nice to have them there. I was too nervous to look at people, but according to Mum, my nan, everyone was crying, and I think it's probably because I'm Sharon's daughter. I just want to say to people, get in contact with the police if you know anything or know anyone, even if it's the smallest of things. It's really important to tell someone. It's important indeed, isn't it? Anyone with any information concerning Sharon's murder can call Lincolnshire Police on 101 or can contact Crime Stoppers anonymously if needs be by calling 0800 555 111. Tragic and horrific enough a crime that one, isn't it, eh? Just over two months after Sharon's murder, the same town was rocked by yet another horrific killing just three miles away. Now this is a case from the True Crime Enthusiast archives that I covered back on the blog back in May 2017 where the account is still available on the website if you want to go and have a look. In their respectable four-bedroomed house at number 30 Longcliff Road in Grantham, a built-up, well-populated, affluent area with well-kept houses and gardens, the Pacey family consisted of 39-year-old self-employed plumber Andrew, his 38-year-old wife Julie, and their two children, 14-year-old Helen and 11-year-old Matthew. Both Andrew and Julie were childhood sweethearts from the Grantham area and had remained here following their marriage in 1977 as most of their families still lived close by. Andrew's plumbing business was thriving and the Paceys were by all accounts nothing but a happy, popular and outgoing family, well liked and with lots of friends. On Monday the 26th of September 1994 should have been just an ordinary day in their lives. Instead, that Monday was the day that life as they knew it ended for the Pacey family. The school summer holidays had not long ended, which I bet most parents are proper glad to see the back of come September. And even with the onset of autumn, by Monday the 26th of September, it was still warm and sunny. Andrew had set off from home early that morning as he was working at a plumbing job at a housing development across town on the other side of Grantham 
and the Pacey children had both left to go to the local secondary school, the Priory Ruskin Academy, where they were pupils. Now, Julie herself didn't have full-time employment as she'd elected to be a stay-at-home mum while her children were young. But now they were both in secondary school, she decided to work part-time in a job that could fit around the children being in school. So to this extent, she'd found part-time work in December 1993 as a helper at the children's day nursery, St Peter and Paul's, on Grantham's Trent Road. As this was a short distance of less than three miles from the family home, it meant that Julie could always be back in time for her children getting in from school, where she liked to be to welcome them home. Most days, Julie also minded the daughter of a neighbour at the Pacey house after school because the girl's mother had to work. Every day, in fact, except on a Monday. At 4.15pm that Monday, Helen Pacey arrived home from school and after walking through the door, called out a greeting to her mother as was her usual custom. No answer. Helen called again to no answer and after ascertaining that her mother was not anywhere downstairs or in the back garden, headed upstairs to look. Each of the bedrooms again drew a blank, but trying to push open the bathroom door, Helen was met with some resistance. It took considerable force, but she finally managed to prise the door open, only to discover her mother laid out face down behind the door in a state of semi-undress. Thinking that her mother had taken ill and collapsed, Helen tried frantically to wake and revive her, and when this failed, dialed 999 for emergency assistance. Paramedics arrived shortly and fought in vain to revive Julie, but it was to no use and she was declared dead at the scene. It was only when the polo neck of the black sweater that Julie had been wearing moved down did paramedics see an ugly-looking ligature mark around her neck, and they realised that she'd been strangled. This had now become a murder inquiry. The scene was preserved as best as possible, and police were contacted immediately and attended the scene. Upon their arrival, the context of the scene could now be taken in fully, a scene that may have been misinterpreted by Julie's traumatised daughter. Julie was lying face down on her bathroom floor with her tights and underwear around her knees. There were no signs of any displacement in the room and barring the vicious ligature mark around her throat, Julie showed no signs of having been beaten or having been involved in a struggle. Her upper clothing was undisturbed and her long, well-manicured fingernails were undamaged. She had, however, been viciously sexually assaulted and then strangled. Senior crime officers could find no evidence of any break-in to the property. All the windows were securely closed and the patio door and kitchen back door were both locked from the inside. The front door had been open but Helen, in her distress, could not remember for sure if she'd opened the door herself with her own key or if it was already unlocked when she got home. There was also no sign of any ransack into the house. Indeed, it was as spotlessly tidy as it was usually kept by Julie. Julie's handbag and purse lay untouched on the bed and the only things that were seemingly out of place were a half-drunk cup of coffee on the bedside table and an empty chocolate bar wrapper which was found on the floor beside the bed. The only thing that was missing, however, was a very distinct watch that Julie wore, 
a watch that had been bought from when the Paces had holidayed in Paris just two months before. It was an expensive black and gold Luc Desroches watch, of which there wasn't another in the UK. The officer leading the hunt, Detective Superintendent Roger Billingsley, later told the local press, There were no signs of a break-in, so we have to assume that the killer either walked in or Julie let him in. Probably Julie was surprised in the bathroom, yet nothing in the bathroom or the bedroom was disturbed. There were no bruises on her body and no other marks except where the ligature had been. This man probably opened the front door, walked up the stairs, strangled his victim and left. As a shocked and devastated Andrew Pacey began to try and console his children, the murder hunt, codenamed Operation Hillstar, began with house-to-house inquiries in Longcliffe Road and the surrounding estates, and a fingertip search of the house, gardens and surrounding areas was undertaken for a possible disposed murder weapon. The Pacey home was situated next to an at-the-time patch of undeveloped scrubland, It's a Road today, that was popular with dog walkers at the time, but no one was found who had seen or heard any disturbance, any screams or any sounds of a struggle. Whilst this was ongoing, other officers began looking into Julie's life and background, hoping that as with the majority of murder hunts, by examining the victim's background and life, something will often come to light that can point to a possible motive for murder and usually something that will provide a tangible lead to the killer. But an examination of Julie's background revealed nothing. She was a devoted wife and mother, loved by her family and massively liked by her friends and neighbours. Inquiries revealed no evidence to suggest that Julie was involved in an extramarital affair or had anyone wishing her harm for any reason. Andrew Pacey was ruled out as a suspect in his wife's murder almost immediately. It is, of course, common for a close family member of the victim to be considered a suspect in a murder investigation, but Andrew had a solid corroborated alibi for the time Julie was murdered and indeed was left shattered by his wife's death. Eleven days after the murder, he bravely faced a press conference alongside Detective Superintendent Billingsley, where he appealed for the man who had ruined his family to come forward. Struggling to contain his grief, Andrew told the crowded press room, If he could just see what he'd done to our family, he would come forward. It's just Julie was so lovely, she would not have upset anyone. I've just got the children to consider now. Helen has been very upset and quiet. Matthew's been speaking more, but he's still very upset at night time, obviously. The police are doing all they can, but someone must have seen something. Andrew then broke down and had to be comforted by a victim support counsellor. Retracing Julie's steps on that fateful Monday, detectives found that she'd gone to the Trent Road nursery to assist as usual that morning for 10am and had left there around 2pm to be home in plenty of time for the children getting home. Julie's parents, Keith and Joy Wilkinson, lived just two miles from the Paceys, and Julia decided to drive and visit them briefly first that afternoon, which they confirmed. She did not, however, stay at her folks for very long, because witnesses were found who knew Julie, and who saw her window shopping in Grantham Town Centre at about 2.30pm that Monday. She was then seen by neighbours parking a blue Audi in the driveway of the Pacey home at about 
but there was suggestion that Julie may have made another short trip out after this because another witness who knew Julie came forward to say that they were adamant that they'd seen her driving back towards her home at 10 past 3 that Monday. So had Julie made a further trip out that day? If she had done, then where she went on this final journey has never been ascertained. If the witness is correct about the day, then Julie must have returned immediately home after this, and this must have been shortly before she was murdered. Otherwise, there's a window of just over 90 minutes from Julie last being seen alive to her body being discovered by her daughter. Now there was evidence in the house to suggest that Julie had come in from work as usual that afternoon as a turquoise nursery overall was found hanging in its usual place on a hook on the back of her bedroom door. She'd made herself a cup of coffee, which she'd only half drunk, and had also eaten a chocolate bar. The evidence of this was found in the bedroom and the wrapper on the floor matched other bars that were found in the kitchen cupboard. Julie then either began retouching her makeup or removing it, for makeup items including nail polish remover were found on the bed alongside her handbag. It must have been just then that Julie either let in her killer or he let himself in and attacked her, most likely in the bathroom. She was then savagely raped and strangled with a ligature, believed to be something like a tough electrical cable or a flex that the killer took away from the scene with him. This murder weapon has never been found. Reports were also received from several witnesses who claimed that they'd seen Julie on a number of occasions driving a blue BMW 5 Series, including it being parked on the Pacey driveway next to Julie's blue Audi on several occasions. Now the Pacey family have always remained adamant that Julie had no access to such a vehicle, creating a detail that's never been explained in the case. But where this becomes interesting is that on the day of the murder, such a vehicle was seen twice within the space of less than an hour, driving very fast away from the direction of Long Cliff Road. Once at 20 past three, and again five minutes before Helen found her mother's body. Inquiries in the area did lead detectives to a man that they wished to eliminate from the investigation, a man who's never been traced and who remains the chief suspect to this day in Julie's murder. A woman named Maya Thomas was getting into a taxi just a short distance from Julie's house in Highcliffe Road at 10 past three that Monday afternoon when a man stepped out into the road directly behind the taxi, causing a passing car to break sharply. And Mrs. Thomas saw a waving apology to the man that she'd almost collided with, and then continued driving before indicating left into Longcliffe Road, just a hundred yards further down at the T-junction. The man had been walking away from the direction of Longcliffe Road, up Highcliffe Road, but following this near miss, he then turned and ran back towards the junction, retracing his steps. The man was described as being stockily built, aged in his mid to late 40s and wearing scruffy pale blue overalls or boiler suits with a checked shirt underneath and having very prominent, extremely red cheeks in what would politely be described as ruddy-faced with an outdoor complexion. Now that's a true piece of show's history there because it was this very photo fit that was my very first post on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast's Instagram page back in May 2017 when I covered Julie's case for my then simple blog. 
and I'll ensure that it's placed up again with other pictures on there that tie in with this week's episode for the episode show notes. Now where police further sat up and listened about this account was when Julie's children recounted to them a tale of an encounter that their mother had told them that she'd had on the Friday before she was murdered, the 23rd of September, which tallied with this sighting. At around 3.30pm that Friday afternoon, Julie had been alone in her house and was vacuuming upstairs when the doorbell rang. Expecting that it was the neighbour's daughter that she minded after school, Julie shouted down for her to enter, but instead... She looked down from the landing and found a scruffy man in blue overalls standing in the hallway. He asked her for directions to another road on the estate, Eskdale Road, but had then left when Julia told him that he'd got the wrong house, passing the neighbour's daughter on the driveway as he left. The girl was able to accurately describe the man, who matched the description of Overall's man who'd stepped out behind the taxi on the day that Julie was murdered exactly even down to the vivid red cheeks. Now the estate bordering Longcliffe Road was having lots of building and renovation work done at the time and detectives believed at first that this man was possibly one of the many builders and workmen on the estate. Inquiries were made amongst the plant hire and contractors working on the site but soon drew a blank. He'd not called at any other houses in the area including in Eskdale Road and nor was he part of any of the workmen working on the estate. I mean, somebody with cheeks redder than a baboon's arse would tend to stand out, wouldn't they, really? But a similar man was seen several times around Grantham, however, before and after Julie's murder. What was likely the same man was also reported as asking for directions to an industrial estate across Grantham on Thursday the 22nd of September and drew suspicion by leaving and not needing the complex directions repeating as though it was like a bit of a sham. He was seen in a park in Grantham kicking through the grass as though he was searching for something the day after Julie's murder and he was also seen in a shop in the town centre the same day. Whilst he was in the shop he was remembered as he stood out by having an aggressive, suspicious manner and by standing far too close to the shop assistant. This man has never been traced. In November 1994, Julie's murder was reconstructed and appealed on Crime Watch UK, where the reconstruction comprised of what was known about Julie's movements on the day she was murdered and included the encounter with Overall's man on the previous Friday. Although more than 80 calls were received as a result, with people offering different information following the TV appeal, it never led to the identity of Overall's man being discovered, or any information that could point detectives really in the direction of identifying Julie's killer. Although the case was never closed, the investigation was to remain at a standstill for many years, albeit with regular reviews. But by mid-2015, DNA technology had advanced to such a point that detectives were now able to obtain a full DNA profile of Julie's killer from samples that were removed from the crime scene in 1994 using a technique called DNA-17. Unfortunately, although police now had a workable DNA profile of the killer, this profile didn't match any samples that were held on record on the National DNA Database. But undeterred, armed with this breakthrough, police now decided to issue a fresh appeal about the murder, once again using Crime Watch UK. 
The original reconstruction was shown as part of a reappeal on the programme in July 2015, and as a point of interest here, following this reappeal, several people rang into Crime Watch giving the name of a 53-year-old Nottinghamshire man called Steve Watson, as matching the description of Overall's man. Police subsequently visited Steve Watson, questioned him, and took a DNA sample from him. Now Steve Watson did indeed match the description of Overall's man very closely, unbelievably closely in fact, because Steve Watson was none other than the actor who had played Overall's man in the original 1994 Crime Watch UK reconstruction. Unsurprisingly, his DNA sample didn't match the obtained profile from the DNA 17 technique and he was released without any charge. He later told BBC News, My face was on the screen for too long, and even then people in the street said, Oh, is that that murderer? To hear those words you think, Please, it's just a reconstruction, surely you understand. But unfortunately they don't. A couple of people in Newark recognised me, put me forward as a suspect, and I was on the end of having my DNA taken and all sorts. So the Reacher crime watch could work even after a gap of 21 years and instead of thinking, oh this is useful this, we'll keep this old school, BBC instead pissed about with it until they eventually got rid of it, sacrificing it to keep on the shit that they churn out now like depressing soaps or endless cookery shows or watching dickheads dancing, all that load of nonsense. Well done BBC, pillocks. So DNA profile aside, what then can be said about Julie's killer? To me, it seems very likely that Julie was a deliberate target. She was an attractive woman, one who would surely have turned heads, and it was also likely that this was a focused, sexually motivated killing against her personally, rather than an opportunistic rape during a burglary. If the killer was just purely after sex to satisfy an urge, then this could have been obtained with any opportune victim, for example a dog walker or a schoolgirl walking home, in a much less risky location, but this was a sex killing in a suburban home in a busy street in the middle of the afternoon. It's a very high risk locale and time of offence, and to go to such a risk suggests to me that Julie was a very specific target for a killer. It was a premeditated crime and showed some signs of organisation. After all, the killer managed to commit murder in a suburban home in the middle of the day without being disturbed. He brought and removed the ligature that he used to strangle Julie to and from the scene. He managed to restrain, rape and strangle her unheard and was able to access and egress the scene without any witnesses whatsoever. Yet he left an obtainable DNA sample behind although it's not reported as to the source of this DNA, whether it was from his blood, saliva, semen, and so he may not have realised the significance of it. It's also likely, I think, that Julie's watch was taken as a trophy by the killer. Although it was expensive and unique, it's never shown up anywhere since her murder. No other jewellery or property was taken, nor any signs of ransacking or anything of value stolen, which I believe supports the theory of the watch being more of a trophy or memento than a payday. I believe it's possible that Julie's killer had in the very least watched the house over a period of days to learn her movements, because I don't believe this is an opportune crime. 
He'd seen her somewhere and developed a fantasy about her that spilled over into rape and murder. Now it's unlikely to be a period of many weeks because this would likely have been noted in such a closely knit neighbourhood but it certainly needed to be over a period of several days to learn when she was alone. Now this theory is strengthened by the fact that on any other day except for a Monday, Julie's neighbour's daughter would have been at the house being minded at any time after 3.15pm. So is this just coincidence that Julie was killed the one day of the week when she would have been in the house alone for a short period of time? Or was it forward planning? I also think that the Friday visitor who Julie found in the hallway asking for directions to Eskdale Road was the killer and this was either a trial run to see if he could gain access to the house under some ruse or he was planning to rape and kill Julie there and then and his nerve went as the conscious that her neighbour's daughter could arrive any minute and him be discovered outweighed his desire to rape and kill that day. If this scenario is likely, then the killer would have spent the weekend mentally preparing for his next opportunity, which would have been Monday. It's also possible that he'd noted the building and redevelopment work going on in the locale, and the overalls were a form of disguise to blend in and camouflage himself against the other workmen and builders working nearby. I do think it very likely that Overalls Man was the killer of Julie Pacey. I think each sighting we've mentioned is of the same man and he's mentioned far too prominently for him to be anything but the prime suspect. It also stretches credulity that anyone who innocently went to the house purely to ask for directions would not have come forward to eliminate themselves. The crime raised massive publicity at the time. And were they genuine? Would someone really stop and ask for directions at a random house rather than stop somebody that they came across on the street or call at a shop to ask or a pub with this guaranteed to be someone to speak to? Now, I believe it's likely that Julie was the definite target. And I don't think that her murder is the only crime that's ever been committed by this man as well. Organised, risky and brutal daytime rape and murder in a suburban home is not a first offence and the murder showed enough level of organisation and was executed well enough to suggest that this person has offended before. Indeed, this man likely has a history of sexual offending, possibly voyeurism, indecent assault or rape for the same reasons. He has, however, not come to police attention since the onset of the National DNA Database in 1995 as the DNA sample of Julie's killer has to date not matched anyone on the database. Now this doesn't mean he's stopped offending, he may just have become more refined and certainly hasn't been arrested for any offences from 1995 onwards. And unless he commits another crime and is caught, or a match with the DNA sample police have of Julie's killer is made through a familial DNA match, he will likely remain free. A conscience hasn't come to the surface in 25 years, so there isn't much chance of that elusive confession born out of guilt. Because of the passage of 25 years since Julie's murder, any physical description of the killer will now be largely rendered moot. He will have aged and his appearance may have changed drastically. He may no longer be in the Grantham area, even the country, and of course, he may even now be in a hospital, or he may even be dead himself. Yet surely someone knows who this man is or was and as shown with police being led to the door of Steve Watson 
That description is still effective and does still trigger people's memories even after so many years. Police will not give up the search for the killer though, and nor will Julie's family give up hope that he does face justice for his horrific crime. A husband who's had to grieve for almost a quarter of a century, and a son and daughter who've grown into adulthood themselves now without having their mum there to watch them do so. Julie may have even perhaps been a grandmother herself today. Absolutely tragic. So two heinous and proper tragic cases this week, aren't they? Police have always resisted linking Sharon and Julie's cases, despite the obvious geographical link and the timescale, and I've personally never considered the two to be the work of the same killer. I think the MO and victimology is too different in each case, and that it just does happen to be coincidental that they took place in the same town, two months and three miles apart. What they do share in common though is the outrage and horror in each. I mean, families were proper torn apart here and three children were left without their mother. In Sarah's case, having to grow up never even being able to remember her mother as she was just five months old when she was murdered. And Helen Pacey finding her mother's body like that. Well, that's something that no one, let alone a child, should ever have to find. Imagine having to go into adulthood where you still need your mum just as much as you ever have, but instead only having memories of her that are dominated by the one of finding her murdered. Well, it's just heartbreaking and horrific that, isn't it? There aren't really any other words, are there? I know that after the account of Sharon's case, I gave details of numbers that can be called with information, and I shall once again reiterate here. Anyone having any information concerning the murder of either Sharon Harper or Julie Pacey should contact Lincolnshire Police using the 101 number or alternatively by calling Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. Any information can even be passed anonymously. These really are two families that do need some closure so they can at least try and begin to close wounds that will otherwise never really begin to heal. My theories and observations concerning each of these cases featured within the episode have been just that. As I've stressed, I don't claim any of them to be definitively what have happened in each case and if I've missed anything glaringly obvious, or there are any theories that you guys may have concerning each case, then I'd be more than glad to hear them. I'm not some sort of oracle after all, and I do welcome debate and discussion. The thread for you guys to come and discuss, should you wish, will be up with the episode link now in the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group. Or you can also, as ever, use any of the show's social media links to get in touch with me should you want to discuss the cases featured this episode. You can email me, or you can even turn up at my house to discuss them should you know where I live, and if you want to, I'm happy to get back to everyone as always. Although this week they've both been sad cases and ones that may frustrate because there isn't really a resolution to them, instead mostly just speculation... I hope you understand why names such as Sharon and Julie's are important to me to bring to the forefront, and I hope that you found each account both informative and interesting. But more than that, I hope they now become names that you remember. And that, enthusiasts, is a wrap for this week. I shall be back next week with another case for your ears, 
but in the meantime I'm off to get stuck further into my box from Beer52 as I crack on with the said case. Remember to check out the link to this week's sponsors of the show, Beer52, that's placed in this week's show notes should you fancy signing up for your own free creator-themed craft beer, all for £4.95 postage costs only. What a bargain. And that next Patreon episode is coming shortly as well, folks. Keep an ear out for it. Until we next speak then, I've been, I still am, and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, Wishing you guys good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Thanks very much for joining me all. Take care and goodbye for now.